Okay. Good morning. Didn't like that. Okay. Okay, well, I'd like to add my welcome to the others that you've had so far this morning, and um, it's good to see you. And as Nick said, we've been following a series in the Gospel of John. Now, if you haven't already done this, particularly if you are a regular um, attender here, I would really encourage you to read your way through the Gospel of John. And if you haven't done it for a while, do it again. It's a fantastic book. Um, And it will help you to get a sense of where the seven statements that we are Um, looking at this morning um, fit into the rest. This is not sounding good to me. Is that, is it all right? Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And John as a gospel is very different from the other three gospels. It was written a bit later and it was written by um, the man who was probably Jesus' best friend, his closest friend while he was on the earth. And reading it Um, Every time I read it, I'm always struck that Jesus comes across as far more interesting um, than the way that particularly I tend to perceive him. Um, He's far more controversial, he's far more provocative, um, and far more challenging um, than certainly the picture in my head that I often have of who Jesus is. So uh, go away and read it. You might not agree with me, but read it and see what you think. So John sets out his book very helpfully. He sets out at the beginning of the book who he thinks Jesus is. And the rest of the book is kind of his outworking of that through what Jesus said. And at the end, then he tells you why he wrote it. So the sort of book ended with what it's about, which is quite helpful. So um, John chapter 1 begins by saying, In the beginning was the word, which is a conscious echo um, of the book of Genesis. Um, And he says, the word was with God and the word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I do have a PowerPoint. Okay. Um, So John sets out that Jesus is the word, that the word was there at the beginning, in other words, before creation, and that the word is God. That the word became flesh or, you know, literally this stuff and dwell among us. In other words, Jesus is God who became human. And John sets this out right at the beginning of the gospel. That's what this book is about. And then at the end of the book, um, in John chapter 20, he tells you why he wrote it. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John, in other words, has picked carefully what he's put in this book to make the points that he wants to make so that you would believe that Jesus was not just anyone, but someone really, really specific, the Messiah, who was the Jewish promised one who was prophesied about in the Old Testament hundreds of years before he came, and that he was the Son of God. And if you believe that, then you have life. So our passage for today fits into this gospel, and it's in John chapter 10. 
Um, and uh, you may want a church Bible, because I'm not putting it all up here. There's just too much. So Ian has helpfully jumped to his feet. So if you wave a hand, uh, he will give you a Bible. Um, and we're going to read uh, from verse 1. So a few hands up. If you've got green Bibles, that's the ones I've got page numbers for. Ian, but uh, otherwise that's okay. Red ones, the same text, but you have to work a bit harder if you get one to work out where everything is from. And if you've got a green Bible, it's page 808. If not, you're on your own. Father, as we open your word, I pray that you would speak to us through what's here. I pray that you would open this up to us this morning and that you would have something to say to each person here. Okay, so starting at verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who doesn't enter the sheepfold by the gate but who climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought them all out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. So he's saying here that he's gone on ahead of us. He's not necessarily with us at the moment, but we can still follow him because we hear his voice. Um, verse 5, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they don't recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech that the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. So if you're blank at the moment, you're not on your own. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I'm the gate for the sheep. All who've gone before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. So Jesus says he's the gate and whoever comes in through him will be saved. Now I could preach a whole sermon on that, but I'm going to leave that there for whoever's preaching on I am the way, the truth and the life. Um, But this is a very clear link to that passage, which is coming up later in the series. Taster there, come back and hear more. Uh, Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And Jesus in this passage is speaking to Jews, and they're the first flock. So the sheep who are not of this sheepfold, the people that he was talking to, that's us or anyone who's not a Jew. And we will be one flock with the Jewish believers. 
verse 17. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So Jesus wasn't on the cross when he was crucified. He wasn't on the cross and held there by the nails. And he wasn't on the cross because there was some mock shabby trial. He was there. No one took his life from him. The people who crucified him or the people who said he should be crucified. He gave his own life. It says here, he laid it down. He had the authority to do that. And then he had the authority to take it up again. Verse 19, the Jews who heard these words were again divided. You can understand why. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Which was the miracle that had happened in chapter 9. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. And just as a side, that's Hanukkah. Jesus didn't celebrate Christmas. But he did, apparently, celebrate Hanukkah. It was winter, and Jesus was at the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe, because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who's given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So we're going to look at three aspects of this passage. Um, First of all, uh, the sheep and the shepherd, then the good shepherd, and then I am the good shepherd. So we'll start with the sheep and the shepherd. Now, I like sheep. I really do. They are quite spectacularly stupid individually. Uh, Although, if you think about them collectively, you cannot mistreat sheep. They just die. So you can't intensively farm sheep. So, because they need to be looked after. So perhaps they're not quite stupid, not so stupid after all. But what sheep are notorious for is scattering. So if there's a hole in the fence, of a field where you have sheep, they will find it and they will get out and they will go everywhere. And it takes someone who knows what they are doing to gather sheep up, even one, but certainly with more than one, to gather them up and put them back where they are supposed to be. Now, if you compare that to cows, I grew up in Devon. I know a thing or two about cows. Now, I know that they tend to stay in their field and they also know where they're going. So when I was 13, uh, one of my friends 
parents had a milk farm, and we would go out, we would open the gate of the field onto the Devon Lane and bring the cows in for milking. And the cow, it didn't take a 13-year-old, you just had to open the gate. Cows know where they're going, they walk down the lane, and they go to the milking parlour. No one in their right mind would have got us to move a single sheep along a Devon lane. It would have caused utter chaos. They are just, they scatter. But sheep know the voice of their shepherd, someone who knows how to look after them, and they would follow their voice. But they're not his sheep because they follow his voice. They follow his voice because they are his sheep. So if you've got Apparently. Now, I've no idea if this is true or not. You know you read stuff, particularly Christian sermon preparation stuff, and it it tells you things. So I'm just putting out there, I've no idea if this is true. But apparently, what used to happen was that there would be a number of sheep belonging to a number of people in a place. Uh, And the shepherds would start to speak and call, and the sheep would go to the correct shepherd. It's a really nice picture I said, I don't know if it's true or not. But if it is, and it seems to be what's in view here, you don't become the shepherd and you don't own the sheep because when you call, the sheep go to you. The sheep go to you because you are the shepherd. And you are a sheep. Sorry, I've just gone on about how stupid they are, but you you are a sheep. So am I. You are a sheep because he called you And in verse 3, it tells you he called you by name. You are you. (coughs) Excuse me. You are an individual. He knows you by name. You are not an anonymous member of the flock. You are important to him individually. You hear his voice and you follow him because you are a sheep. You are not a sheep because you hear his voice. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 tells you that God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, I don't pretend to understand that, but it's what the Bible says. You are a sheep because he chose you to be a sheep. John 10 also says that you were a gift from the Father to the son in verse 29 it says the father has given them the sheep to me rather troublesome gift I always think costly one as well because Jesus had to lay down his life to get you but he did it because he's the good shepherd now if you are a sheep you are always a sheep you don't suddenly turn into a giraffe Sheep who find a hole in the field and get out and walk down the lane don't turn into cows. They are all sheep. If you are a sheep, you are always a sheep and you will be kept safe. Verse 28 says, I give them, that's the sheep, Jesus speaking, eternal life and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father, who's greater than all, my father gave them to me, who gave them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So if you are a sheep, you have eternal life. When do you get that eternal life? When you believed. 
Now, I say this on the authority of Scripture, but also on the authority of Mike Beaumont, international Bible teacher and former pastor of this church, who spent one memorable sermon hammering home the point that eternal life starts now, not at some point in the future. So if that eternal life starts now, and if you have it when you believe, can you unhave it or lose it? Jesus here says not. He says the sheep will never perish. They may well scatter. Sheep are notorious for scattering, but they are still sheep. Even in verse 12 of this chapter, we're told that the wolf scatters the sheep. We are not told that the wolf destroys the sheep. We are in his hand, he says, and no one can snatch the sheep out of his hand. Actually, he also says that no one can snatch them from his father's hands. Two hands. It's pretty safe. Paul was convinced of the same. Uh, In Romans chapter 8, verse 35, he wrote, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Or if you prefer, who shall stop you from being a sheep? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, he says. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I am sometimes trouble, especially to myself, and I suspect probably to my family, but I am, of all the many things that I am, part of creation. Paul says here, nothing I do now And nothing I do in the future can separate me or stop me from being a sheep. I might be scattered, and I have been. I've walked away from my faith on more than one occasion. But I will not be destroyed because those hands will not let me go. I am still a sheep. I am a bit stupid. I'm a bit in need of guidance, but I am still a sheep. Now, it might seem that this is not a hugely flattering metaphor that God has chosen to use. And it is used extensively throughout the Bible, not just here. And we'll look at that in a minute. But it's also rather comforting. Because if he's the good shepherd, he's an experienced shepherd. And he is therefore not surprised by the behavior of a sheep. He laid down his life to give this daft sheep and these daft sheep life. Not just a little bit of life, but in full in abundance, eternal, can't be snatched away from us, life. So, the good shepherd, second point. Moses was the first leader of the nation of Israel. Actually, he was a shepherd as well, first for 40 years. Uh, He oversaw the plagues. He brought the people out of Egypt. Um, he led the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. Um, and at the end of his life, he stood um, with them and looked out over the promised land. Um, and he knew he was going to die there and not enter it. God had told him. Um, and if you don't know the story um, of Moses, of his early years, actually, even if you do, I highly recommend the film, The Prince of Egypt. It's, it's on Netflix. Um, it's an animation. It's utterly brilliant. 
Anyway, um, God told Moses that his life was going to end. So Moses prayed for the people that he had led so long. And he prayed for them regularly. But this particular prayer is recorded in the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 27. And Moses said, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them. One who will lead them out and bring them in so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Now, in some ways, this prayer was answered in the person of Joshua, who was his successor and who was an able leader. But the Bible tells us in verse 21 of the same chapter that it's at Joshua's command the people went out, and at his command they came in which is not quite what Moses prayed. So it seems to be setting this up that, Mo- that Joshua wasn't actually entirely the answer to Moses' prayer. And Moses' prayer was not answered until the coming of Jesus, who was the answer or the fulfillment to this prophetic prayer. Now, I don't know how quickly you like your prayers answered. I'll just point out this one took over a thousand years. So in laying claim to be the good shepherd, Jesus was laying claim to this prophetic prayer of Moses, but he was also making a deliberate contrast between himself and the not very good shepherds who had gone before him. The leaders of Israel, particularly the priests, were known as the shepherds of Israel, and they were to lead Israel in the ways of God, and they had frequently failed to do so. And God had condemned them for it in various passages in the Old Testament, but particularly in Ezekiel 34. Now, you might think that I'm taking you into some rather obscure bits of the Old Testament here, bits where even the pages of these rather well-thumbed church Bibles are looking pretty pristine. But these passages were very familiar to Jesus' original hearers. They were the Pharisees, they were the teachers of Israel, and they knew very clearly what Jesus was saying and what he was referring to. So we're going to turn now to uh, Ezekiel 34, which if you've got one of the green Bibles, uh, is on page 648. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Now, confusingly, that's Ezekiel that God is talking to, not Jesus, although Jesus does use it as a title of himself. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who take care of your, only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak, or healed those who were ill, or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and no one searched for them. Notice again that no one's surprised when these sheep scatter, but the good shepherd brings them back. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Skipping across to verse 10. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock. I will rescue the flock from their mouths. Keep your finger in that passage because we are going to come back to it. It's quite an indictment. 
Jesus, in calling himself the good shepherd and saying he will take care of the flock and search for the lost, is quite deliberately setting himself up as a contrast to these shepherds who have done no such thing. And don't forget, Jesus is talking to the Jewish leadership, those who at the time should have been the shepherds of Israel. And they were suitably provoked and suitably annoyed, as you can tell, by what happens later. They try to kill him. So in this passage in John, he compares himself to two particular groups. Just back to John for a minute. He compares himself to the hired hand and to the thieves and the robbers. So thieves and the robbers come in to do harm deliberately. And the sheep, it says, don't listen to them. But the hired hands are there to care for the sheep. But they abandon the sheep when the wolf comes. They're not the shepherd and they don't own the sheep. And they get scared and they run off. And when I was preparing this, I felt that perhaps there were some here who had known some less than good shepherds and shepherding. Perhaps people, you've known people who were in a position where they should have taken care of you, but they didn't. Perhaps there have been people who should have strengthened us when we were weak or looked after us when we were ill or injured or brought us back when we were lost, but didn't. Or people who've been harsh and brutal or taken from us but given no care in return, like the passage in Ezekiel talks about. Now, these might be people in your family, parents, for example, who've been less than ideal, or spouses. It might have been church or religious leaders whose behaviour falls short. And I wrote this a couple of weeks ago, and the events of this week make this uh, come into focus a bit more. But don't forget, church leaders mostly are themselves sheep, and sheep are notoriously daft and woolly-headed. Sorry, Nick. But Jesus sets himself up as a contrast. He's the good shepherd. Um, So where people we might have trusted previously have treated us badly, perhaps through their own fear or lack of wisdom, he's the good shepherd. He owns the sheep. He knows them, and he lays down his life for them. He's not going to run away out of fear. He promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. He's the good shepherd, and you can trust him to be good. And final point is, I am the good shepherd. And Nick spoke a few weeks ago about how all the I am statements of Jesus are a deliberate echo of the name of God revealed to Moses in the burning bush. He was called Jehovah or Yahweh, which means something like, I am or I am who I am. And this statement of Jesus is clearly one of those with that same echo of I am. But in saying I am the good shepherd, Jesus is making a further claim which was well understood by his original listeners and was what riled them so much. So if we go back to Ezekiel 34, picking it up at verse 11, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of cloud and darkness. Verse 15. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. 
God here is promising that he will fulfill the offices of a shepherd. He will search for the sheep. He will look after the sheep. He will rescue the sheep. He will tend the sheep. When Jesus promises to do that himself, and they are absolute echo of what he promises in John chapter 10, he's making a claim to do what the Lord declared he would do himself. The idea of the Lord as the shepherd of Israel is not only found in Ezekiel. Probably the best known and loved psalm begins, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's written by David, who was himself a shepherd before he was a king. And Jacob, who's also a shepherd, um, recognized God as his shepherd. At the end of his life, he described him as the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day in Genesis 48. So these two refer to God as the shepherd of the individual, but God's also referred to as the shepherd of a larger flock. In Isaiah 40, it says, The sovereign Lord tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And Psalm 100, verse 3 says, Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people the sheep of his pasture. And this is just a small selection of the verses which talk about God being the shepherd, particularly a good shepherd of his people Israel. And in case you, or the Pharisees, have missed the point, Jesus then rams it home in John 10, 30, and he says, I and the Father are one. So he's absolutely claiming that where God has promised to be the shepherd, he's promised to be the shepherd because he is the father. And in case you miss the significance of that, John tells us that the Pharisees picked up stones to kill him. When Jesus challenges them as to why, they reply that you, a mere man, claim to be God, in verse 33. And John shows very clearly in this passage that Jesus made some astonishing claims He claimed to be God. And sometimes you read that Jesus never made that claim. It was made up later by Paul or some of the other writers. It's not true. You cannot read the Gospel of John and not have it hit you that Jesus claims to be God. John claims that he is God. And they were claims that divided his listeners at the time, and they still do today. You cannot read the Gospel of John and do read it. Go away and read it. You cannot read it and take home the message that Jesus was a good teacher. I'm a good teacher. That is about the extent of the claim I'm going to make. You know, I, I work with good teachers. I teach good teachers. They do not go around claiming to be God. It is not something that a good teacher does. If a teacher made that claim, uh, then they would not qualify as a teacher in this country. It's not a claim you can make. You cannot say, I'm God, and I'm a good teacher, unless, (laughs) we'll come to that in a minute. So um, you can't take the message that that Jesus is a good teacher. His listeners really, really did not think so. they, They thought either that he was barking mad, and it tells you that uh, in verse 20, uh, or that he was an evil blasphemer, verse 30. There really are only four things that you can do with this claim. You can either dismiss them out of hand, you can say he's evil, you can say he's mad. The the only other option 
is that he is who he says he is. He is the I am of the burning bush. He is one with the Father. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the one who was sent by the Father to die for the sheep and give them life in all its fullness. You cannot just dismiss him as someone with a few good ideas. They're not very good ideas unless he's telling the truth. So we've seen today that we are sheep with Jesus as our shepherd. And if we are his sheep, Nothing can stop us from being sheep, even when we are scattered. We are held in his hands and in his father's hands. And we've seen that he's the good shepherd. If we've known less than good shepherding in the past, we can come to him and trust that he will be good. And we've seen that Jesus is God, certainly that he claims to be God, that I am the good shepherd is the claim to some of the promises in the Old Testament, and that Jesus cannot be dismissed as a good teacher with some sensible advice. They're not claims that you can, they're claims that demand some response, and if you don't know him as your shepherd, if you don't know if you're a sheep, I would urge you to talk to one of the church leaders about how you can know him that way. So we're going to finish now, and I'm going to finish by praying over you Psalm 23, and then we're going to sing it together, remembering that we can trust him because he's the good shepherd and we are his sheep. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I pray that you would know the truth of this psalm during this week, that you would know that you are a sheep with a good shepherd who you can trust and who has the power and authority to make good on what he promises. And we're going to sing a song in a minute. Um, And if you've got uh, kids in children's work, can I encourage you to go and collect them and bring them back while we are singing?